I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 79 for June 2019. I'm Duncan, and 1979 was the year of my sister Julie's birth, and she's been celebrating by watching the top 40 ranked films of the year of 1979, and some of which include Apocalypse Now, The Warriors, Kramer vs. Kramer, All That Jazz, Being There, The Who's double hit of The Kids Are Alright and Quadrophenia, Escape from Alcatraz, Manhattan, Mad Max, Scum, Monty Python's seminal Life of Brian, Rock and Roll High School, a couple of giant German films, Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, and Victor Schollendorf's The Tin Drum, and perhaps unsurprisingly, an awful lot of sci-fi aimed at kids. Star Trek motion picture, The Black Hole, Buck Rogers, they even shot James Bond into space with Moonraker. Mm -hmm. But there was one sci-fi film released in 1979 that was not aimed at kids, but that I did watch as a kid, Alien. Wonderful. What a cool thing to do. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty cool, eh? Yeah, I love it. I think she's only got about like four more to go. She's saving the Warriors for last because it's one of her favourite films of all yep. time. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I think she's got Apocalypse Now Redux to get through, which is uh, four hours. You've just got to separate for your... You know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I thought 78 uh, was a big year for horror. Well, 79 gives us the granddaddy of Space Terrace, as Duncan said, Alien, the first of the seemingly endless... Amityville Horrors, Cronenberg's excellent The Brood, Werner Herzog's remake of Nosferatu, of course, and the wonderful for the first act when a stranger calls. Uh, but as we move away from the big hitters, there's lots of grubby delights to be found in the disreputable shadows. Uh, there was still life in the nature run amok subgenre, as proved by the hilarious killer bear film Prophecy, which I think I've spoken about before. Yep. Um, up from the depths and the ridiculous tie jaws knockoff Crocodile, uh, Lucio Fulci also gave us sharks, memorably, in Zombie Flesh Eaters. I love it. On, t- on TV, we got Tobe Hooper's Superior King adaptation, Salem's Lot. I've got to watch that again, eh? I have yeah. so many memories of seeing that on TV, you know? Yeah. yeah. And for real cult horror fans, this was also the year of the visitor and tourist trap. Right. Um, but as usual, I need to pick a favourite from this tidal wave of terrors. And I'm going with Don Coscarelli's trippy cult horror fave, Phantasm. Yeah. Apparently inspired by a dream, Coscarelli's film is dreamlike, which means often disjointed. But it also means it's chock full of odd inventive moments, and it feels like an Italian film, um, not the size of all American terror it is. I still can't tell you exactly how the plot works, <laughs> but I will never forget the towering tall man, uh, the Jabba-like dwarves that drag victims back to their hellish other world, and of course, most memorably, the spheres, chrome softball-sized balls that fly through the air, attach themselves to your head, and then drill through to your brain. Such marvellous creations. Ah, it's excellent. Phantasm's fantastic. Yeah, I love it, eh? Such fun. So uh, um, what have you been watching this uh, month? Uh, well, I've watched a few. I wanted to mention two films uh, that I watched this month because they're kind of connected. Both of them are based around pilots. The first was Dark Blue World. Czech director Jan Sverik adopts an unusual tone. A successful but curious mix of like rose-tinted nostalgia framed by a dark prison story. 
As a Czech pilot held captive in a Soviet prison in the 1950s, reflects on his lost loves and heroics defending England in the air above the white cliffs of Dover in World War II. It is refreshing to see the Battle of Britain through foreign eyes, and while the love triangle is worryingly familiar riff on Pearl Harbor, released the same year, some of the cast help the characters come alive, especially Tara Fitzgerald in particular, does a very good job of conveying her conflicted emotions as she becomes trapped between the affections of the two lead characters, while ghosts of her past cast a shadow across her house. Perhaps the reason to watch this is for the excellent aerial sequences, the soaring charm of the golden age of flight, and the dogfights that put you in the cockpit. The other film is 1979's The Great Santini. Robert DeVal's portrayal of the title character in the same year he gave the world Colonel Kilgour. The Great Santini, the character, is an eccentric, verbose, and pathologically competitive pilot. When he is reassigned from exotic locales to a small town base in the American South, his long-suffering family have to navigate his rocky personality and meet his demanding expectations. The film has some outstanding performances, in my opinion, a career-best performance from Blythe Danner as Lillian, the great Santini's wife. She has terrific chemistry with Duval that it's so believable she would be seduced every time by his unusual charm while being strong enough to challenge his flaws. Michael O'Keefe does a great job being the central object of his father's obsessive competitiveness. The basketball scene where son finally challenges his father's dominance has entered into writer's folklore thanks to William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade, where the legendary screenwriter waxed lyricalism in his appreciation for the character development shown to the viewer through the competition. It reminded me of the most powerful father and son conflicts in Denzel Washington's Fences, especially because it's in the backyard as well. Mm. A, a, a macho patriarch clinging onto his fading superiority over his offspring. And what rings most true is how the abusive explosions that happen in the film don't shatter the family, but it's kind of part of a cycle of this household. So these devastating fights are apologized for and absolved and then kind of or just not really talked about the next day yep. and then just back into the harmony until the next flare up. Uh, and narratively, the great Santini goes to some surprising and dark places and the performances led by Deval make sure we really care about this fracturing family. Uh, yeah, it's worth checking out if you get a chance. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I haven't seen it. Yeah. And uh, what about you? Well... I saw Godzilla 2, King of the Monsters, oh, right. um, thanks to the Baron Devon. Um, yeah. I like the first of this new era of Godzillas. Uh, it sure had its flaws. The humans had less character than the kaiju a lot of the time. And they also had the ability to be wherever in the world the plot needed them to be <laughs> at any moment. Uh, but Gareth Edwards directed the film with Nida Scale and Wonder, a skill he bought from the breakthrough monsters, and would take on to Rogue One. But not everyone liked Godzilla, I understand that. The most common complaint I heard was that there just wasn't enough Godzilla. <laughs> Well, if monsters you want, then monsters is what you get in the sequel, which has Ghidera, Rodin, and Mothra to the mix, as well as a host of like lesser beasties that thankfully get lesser screen time as well. And I assume those were ones that were created for this film, not taken from previous, mm. and it shows because they just don't look as much fun, you know? Right, yeah. But alas, more monsters does not make for a better film. In this case, it makes for a far worse film. To be fair, the problem's the script, not the kaiju. The scenario is one absurdity after another with our protagonists finding themselves in overblown harm's way every 20 minutes or so, as titanic beasties thud and stomp all around them. And yet we as an audience know no one important is going to die. Yeah, It's loud and hectic, but all so, so meaningless, without any of the occasional beauty and artistry of the first film. It's so repetitive that I found my mind wandering to such questions as, why can Gadera chase down a supersonic jet? 
and yet it takes him a while to catch up with hum, a Humvee in the film's end. <laughs> Why can Godzilla burst through Antarctic ice to fight Gadera, and yet that ice then supports both the kaiju as they trade blows? I mean, how, I, I don't get that. <laughs> or how much money does Monarch, the film's equivalent of Marvel's S.H.I.E.L.D. agency, have? I mean, who's funding the submarines and the giant underground bases and the vertical takeoff and landing flying wing that they have that's so huge that other ha- carrier helicopters land on top of it and inside it? How, where's that money come from? <laughs> As it turns out, bad parenting was the real monster all along in this film. But in a more real way, bad writing is the monster in this film. <laughs> There's a black soldier played by O'Shea Jackson Jr. who gets to say, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and now that's what I'm talking about. Nice. Yeah. While a returning Ken Watanabe gets a motivational speech, which he then comically undercuts by saying, I read it in a fortune cookie. <laughs> yep. Uh, a major character flip-flops nonsensically several times, and Charles Dance plays a ridiculous eco-terrorist, uh, but somehow implausibly wrings a little bit of dignity out of it, all because of an, of an ability to make horror dialogue sound better than it should. There's almost nothing to recommend about this film, I've got to say. Uh, it's dumb, it's loud, it's repetitive, and it's so long. Uh, there's a pilot who gets this great ridiculous death scene, which made me laugh out loud in the cinema. Uh, but other than that, I was bored, which is something that should never happen in a film with the word Godzilla in the title. That doesn't surprise me. You know, it's exaggeration. We probably couldn't pay me to go and see these films. <laughs> I just I just don't care about Godzilla. I don't care about giant monsters. I've realised, got to that point in my life where I'm like, nah, I don't think I've ever seen a film. There's been moments in films, like I like the Peter Jackson King Kong remake and right. things like that. Um, every now and then you'll see something kind of fun in it. But I just right. find to sustain a two-hour movie, I just, I, I find... I don't know whether it's the scale. It's just like these lumbering monsters that can just destroy whole things. Yeah. You know, I mean, probably the closest was something like The Host, you know, the, the Korean Oh, this was great. I, I did enjoy the first Godzilla for the reasons I said, but yeah, this one is just lumbering and kind of artless and loud without really doing anything a lot of the time, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and I think this is this thing with a lot of blockbusters where there's such, um, not stakes so much, but characters are put in such impossible danger so repetitively and mm. you, you know that they are, they're going to survive it. I mean, people, people should have died millions of times over in this film <laughs> and they don't because the, the film needs them. And I think they just over-egg that so much. I mean, we're going to talk about it a bit more later, I'm sure. But, yeah, it just uh, it becomes meaningless. Yeah. You know, if characters can survive everything, then why should they ever yeah. pass, you know? it's uh, We talk about this all the time with the Marvel films yeah. as well. Right. Oh, well. Did you see it on IMAX? Um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember what cinema I saw it in. Yeah, it might have been in IMAX. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was more uh, impressive. Was it? it was directed by Michael Doherty, by the way, who who directed Trick or Treat, which I got to say, one of my favourite Halloween themed horror films. Mm. It's just a delightful film. So, um, go see that instead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, please. I can assure you that the stories you hear about this man, if nothing else, has been watered. Done. All right, now it's time for no comms, and this one's a biggie. We're doing the Wickology. Uh, so, with the release of John Wick three this month, we decided it was a perfect time to run the entire series to delve deep into the Wickology, which sounds like a master's degree you might get at university, <laughs> or maybe like a doctorate in Wickology. I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Now, the franchise has gone from commercial strength to strength. The first film racked up a respectable enough forty three million. On the back of a budget of 20 million, this is US. Uh, the 2017 sequel doubled its budget to 40 mil, 
but more than doubled its take to 92. And John Wick 3 has so far raked in $114 million on a $55 million budget. Um, now, of course, these are US figures, and John Wick is, as a series has a pretty decent performer worldwide. It, you know, it travels. So the films have done well, and surprisingly to me, they just keep doing better and better, that mm. you, which it seems odd. Um, after Part 3 opened as the number one film in the States, toppling the Avengers Endgame, which admittedly was tailing off, it's perhaps no shock that Part 4 has already been announced. Mm. Now, I've been into the series since the first film, but for Duncan this month, is his first dip of his toes into the Wick universe. So we've got two like very different experiences, I think, of the sometime reluctant master assassin. So without further ado, let's start our journey with the man they call Bubba Yaga in 2014's John Wick. Starring Keanu Reeves, Michael Nyquist, Alfie Allen, John Leguizamo, Adrian Palecki, William Defoe, and two actors who will become series mainstays, Ian McShane and Lance Reddick. Written by Derek Colstad and directed by Chad Stahelski. After the untimely death of his wife, retired master assassin John Wick mourns her passing in the company of the last gift she ever gave him, a puppy. Until that is, a bunch of hoodlums break into his house, steal his car, and execute his beloved dog. Now John is back in the game, hunting down the bad guys who wronged him. Bad guys who turn out to be led by a Russian mob prince, which leads John Wick into a war against the man's father, Vigo, Vigo Tarasov, and his army of killers. Keanu Reeves often chooses films well, uh, not just in their originality, but also in how they can use his attributes. Both The Matrix and John Wick utilize his blank canvas of placidity. John Wick is a boogeyman, the Baba Yaga, as Simon said, as enigmatic as Kaiser Soze and as feared as Luca Brasi. But to get us on board, the casting crew do three things right. First, they cast likable Keanu as a grieving ex-assassin. Secondly, then give him the most lovable puppy imaginable. Mm. And thirdly, they cast Alfie Allen, most famous at this point in time when it was released, for playing the imminently hateable Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones to kill the most adorable puppy in recent cinematic history. Game set and match to the filmmakers and getting the audience on board. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Look, like I said, I've watched these films before, um, but it's been some time since I've watched part one. And the biggest shock I had was how long it takes before the action begins. Were mm. you surprised by this? Yeah. Yeah, like John Wick doesn't pick up a gun or so much as judo toss a single dude in the film's opening 29 minutes. 29 minutes. Mm. That, that feels wild for a film franchise that has garnered a reputation uh, for rewriting or at least rejuvenating the action film. Almost half an hour before we get an action scene. Instead, Chad Jahelski introduces the character of John Wick, gives time... Gives us time to get to know him and his lovable puppy. Shows us the loss he's experiencing. And for an actor who has a reputation for, you know, making some unusual acting choices sometimes, shall we say, uh, Reeves sells the stuff pretty well, I thought. I buy his wounded soul and believe his heartbreak. But that opening is still quite crazy to go 29 minutes in an action film. It is. It's a hell of a long time. And as you say, um, director Stahelski and uh, writer Derek Colstad refine the film down to a wire-thin plot, tighten it up, at, with some nasty developments, and then snap it into life by unleashing its lead character. The way the film starts slowly makes the eventual explosion of vengeance a, like a really necessary release mm. as a viewer. The film exists in its own world where, uh, like a reality where local cops calmly let an assassin get on with his work, and the world really comes to life with the appearance of Ian McShane's suave underground overlord who offers sanctuary to assassins at his gothic hotel, The Continental. More about that later. The rules of the establishment means that assassins can't attack each other. There are medical facilities and gold coins can be traded for drinks or favours. It is this world building that's such a memorable takeaway from this series. 
Yeah, look, absolutely. It really is. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the four things I think. Like when I think about why this film works so well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say there's there's four things that really make it hit. hit. But before I get to that, um, I said 29 minutes before the first mm. action scene. So after that action scene, and I think when this film really hit, hits off is when we go to the Continental, as you say, which is this, suddenly it opens that, that Hogwarts of it, of Killer's world. <laughs> yeah. And it's just such a fascinating place, and it leads to the film's best set piece, I thought, as Wick hunts his prey from a bathhouse through a nightclub. And I appreciate it, obviously, for being so clear and clean. I can see the action without it being cut to shreds in the edit suite or shot in overly light, tight compositions. Mm. I read an interview with Stahelski where he said they had to do that because they just couldn't afford a heap of cameras giving them coverage, mm. um, or a heap of takes either. And he had this fun anecdote about stuntman, a stuntman getting killed by Keanu Reeves and then like running around behind the camera to get killed by him again because <laughs> they just didn't have enough stuntman to be, you know. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, which I think is hilarious. And I think he's being a little cute here. I think as a stuntman himself, uh, he wants the action to be seen. And it's a very deliberate choice. I, I don't think it's really a budget no. choice at all. And really that would be awful nothing if the stuff that, that's in the frame wasn't so beautifully shot and so beautifully brutal in the first place. Uh, Reeves has this kind of graceful, limber fighting style that's tough and like savagely economical, uh, full of headshots. So many headshots. <laughs> uh, my favourite is probably when he runs a guy over. This is near the end of the film. And as the guy tumbles over the top of the car, he shoots through the roof of his car to make sure he's dead. Yeah. That's hilarious, eh? <laughs> the dude is such a completist, so yeah. thorough. You know? <laughs> the headshots I found almost quite numbing after a while because there's just so many of them. Yeah, oh, yeah. And... Uh, First to three films, man, you'll get more. A little bit queasy, you know what I mean? Like with the amount of headshots. So that really comes in the second and third one. It's just like, man, there's just a lot of dudes getting shot in the head here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he really makes sure it's done, eh? So look, I talked before about the four reasons this um, film hits for me. And I think firstly, it's it's a pretty decent story. Simple, compact, and pretty relentless once Mm. it gets going, you know? I think it loses momentum momentum for a bit following that, that nightclub shootout. In a way that I, I think when we get to it, like part two never loses momentum for me. Um, but it's otherwise pretty damn direct and efficient, even after that like slow build of a beginning. Um, number two, as you pointed out, it's that Harry Potter with Assassin's World. Uh, it, it's just fun and colourful, and it sets up like lots to be explored in the sequels. I can see why this, the sequels have a lot to deal with, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? They can go into that further. and I mean, you can over-explain something, clearly, but it still seems like a fun world to explore. And thirdly, Gun Fu, mm. 2002's uh, Equilibrium, it's a film we've, I've talked about once before, starring Christian Bale, gave us the silly, cool idea of Gun Carter. But the combat style Stahelski and Reeves designed for this film is kind of a magnificent and so-so brutal, stylized and weirdly plausible in a cinematic world full of fast, fast and furiouses and, and, mm. and, you know, superhero films. And of course, the final reason is Keanu Reeves himself. The man who made this all so possible in the first place by backing a stunt team to make a movie that put solid action first and foremost. But more than that, the film makes good use of Reeves as an actor. He's believably wounded and hurt in the first 30 minutes and believably wounding and hurting for the rest of the <laughs> film. His I'm back speech is a great piece of action ass cookery as well. It's, you know, it's one of those good, um, I think, action... Action movie line deliveries are something in themselves, you know? Mm. Um, you think about the things, you know, from the Schwarzenegger films we grew up with, there's an yeah. art saying ridiculous things like that and making yeah. it sound like, yeah. That's right. It's like uh, in both fingers, I got you suckers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not easy to make it sound cool. And there's something about Reese's physicality, physicality as well. It's unique and he's so well suited to the film. He's got this kind of, he's kind of elastic and 
almost gawkian, you know? Mm. But it's also got a smoothness. It's really it's really unusual for an action star. I kind of think in another era he probably would have done musicals. Like I could I shudder to think what a singing voice would sound like. Yeah. But but his dan- I could see him as a dancer. Yeah. And the reverse is uh, you know, like um just Gene Kelly and John Wick, you know what I mean? Just oh, like dancing around, shooting people in the head. Do you know what? <laughs> it absolutely would work, wouldn't it? Yeah, eh? yeah it absolutely would work. There is something dance like about those two men. Um about about him. Like he does that wrapping his legs around his opponent and flipping over with them thing. That is common for female action stars. Like I see, mm. you know, Black Widow does it all the time, but Unusual in a male action star, mm. and yet it seems it's kind of suited to his range and kind of athleticism. Mm. You know, it's almost impossible, I think, for me to imagine another action star doing what John Wick does. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the, there's quite a lot of not so much in this one, maybe in the second one. There's quite a lot of repetition of the kind of judo flips and the, yep. the headshots, and so it does kind of have this repetitious nature to it. That there is a kind of a numbing effect to watching the film so close together. Oh, I can well. imagine, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like not having the two and then three year gap that you've had between them. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> could, I could understand how that could be a thing. Yeah. Yeah, and John Wick wears his influences on its sleeve. Sometimes that's unavoidable. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast before, and I'm sure you have, you know how uh, Simon and I both adore the Hitman films, The Killer and La Samurai. Mm. And so it feels impossible to watch an assassin film without being reminded of them. Uh, stylistically, it has dashes of noir, and it certainly takes influence from Asian cinema, from Kurosawa to Wu. What, what I find pleasing about it is that I don't look at that and think that's exactly something yeah. else. Like, it's creating something original, definitely taking all of those things, but uh, and even, you know, obviously graphic novels and things like that. Yeah. Like the, you know, if, if you had said to me, this is based on a graphic novel, I'd go, yeah. Yeah, go, yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it's a, know, yeah. But it's like that. It's like a, a Sin City or something like that. Yeah. You get that. So it's so um, confident in its style. Mm. Yeah. It feels like it's it's coming from source material somewhere. Yeah. 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 You stabbed the devil in the back and forced him back into the life that he had just left. Now he's free of the market. What do you think he'll do? Okay, so on to John Wick Chapter 2 then. Mm. Uh, starring Keanu Reeves. <laughs> what do you know? Uh, Ricardo Scarmacio, Ian McShane, Lance Reddick, Ruby Rose Common, and Lawrence Fishburne. Mm. Uh, written by Derek Colstad again, and again directed by Chad Stahelski. Having exacted his revenge, John Wick reclaims his car and, in the company of a new canine friend, returns to his home to resume his retirement. Uh, unfortunately, Wick's return has not gone unnoticed, and he is soon forced to carry out another job for the sinister Santino D'Antonio. After a trip to Italy and a vicious shootout in the catacombs, Wick returns to New York with a price on his head, looking to hunt down the man who hired him. I love the way you say catacombs. Thank you. Was that the uh, Ray Fiennes from uh, yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel? I, I will never be able to say catacombs. <laughs> that, I can't remember the guy's name. Was it like Pierre or something? Like, Pierre lost his life in the catacombs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way he delivered it's that. Like, it's like um, Coven. Yeah. You know, it's always going to be in my mind. I remember seeing that at the cinema and uh, just laughing out loud. Just <laughs> The whole audience was just, they had this line delivery there. Perfect. It's one of my favorite Ray Fiennes performances. <laughs> Who knew he was capable of that? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I love how that we just managed to mesh um, yeah. John Wick with uh, Grand yeah, yeah, yeah. Hotel. Yeah. Where's Anderson doing John Wick? It's everything centre oh, and frame. Could you imagine that? <laughs> just that long, just one shot that's just held there. Yeah, I mean, the action scenes would be, you'd see them. Yeah. I'll tell you that. That'd be <laughs> clear, right. eh? Yeah, the, the colours would be Bright really vibrant. pastel backgrounds, yeah. yeah. That's right. <clears throat> just Owen Wilson as John Wick. Yeah. Oh, no. All right, I'm back. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, um... 
unlike the original, the sequel explodes out of the gates with vehicular carnage and gunplay immediately. Uh, the staging of the action sequences remains inventive, such as the villain's torchlight chase of John Wick through Italian catacombs. But there is a pull to the midsection of the film that I found slows the forward momentum. It was oh. interesting that you're saying that it didn't, but uh, and since the film has no character development to engage in, the only place for me to look was narrative build, and that's fairly unrewarding. But fortunately, John Wick 2's final third is a fun levelling up of the stakes. Uh, the multi-million dollar bounty put out on our hero means that the assassins crawl out of the woodwork to claim their prize. Mm. Uh, Wick has to fight them off in a, you know, Hall of Mirrors sequence inspired by Enter the Dragon, mm. the real showstopper. And the film also finishes with the mouth-watering prospect shorn of any protection. John Wick will be at the mercy of an open and endless parade of killers hunting him. Um, and it's the, the broadening of the world building that continues to please in the second installment. The film does it with style and avoids exposition. It's a place where every third person in the crowd is a killer, where faceless armies are ready to rumble at the drop of a hat. <laughs> And I really like that. Again, that's what I really enjoyed about this one was the world building. Yeah, I think John Wick Two, um, without giving anything away, I think it's perhaps the best out of the three at doing this world building. Right. It does the does the most heavy lifting anyway. Yeah, it only really ups the stakes of it. Yeah, yeah. Look, this one is peak wickage for me. I love the conceit, um, as you said, of picking up immediately after the first film with this really great muscular action scene that involves a, a bruising car chase. And in a decent fight scene in a uh, parking garage, with some exposition being doled out by the always delightful Peter Stromier. Yeah. Always happy to see him, eh, you know? Um, admittedly, the introduction of Santino, and this is where it slows a little bit for me, and the twist that Wick cannot retire, feels a little bit clunky, I think. Mm. Um, perhaps it was always going to be. But I'm soon over that because we get County Reeves in Rome ordering weapons from the sommelier played by the delicious Peter Serafinowicz. Mm. Um, I love that whole sequence. And he has scenes with Franco Nero. Yeah, that's um, great. Franco Nero, how would I not love that? And I love when he's like asking him if he's there for the Pope, yeah. um, which is on the face of it kind of a ridiculous thing to suggest, but then you realise, oh, that could happen in the John Wick universe. <laughs> yeah, right. He could be there to kill the Pope. Yeah. Um, I thought Common makes a really great adversary for John Wick as well, an almost equally focused fighter who gets some tremendous action scenes. Um, and one of my favourite gags, a shootout with silences that goes unnoticed yeah. by the busy Manhattan crowds. I think that's hilarious and yeah. um, just so fun. And the action in John Wick 2 is phenomenal. Once again, the geography of the action is clear. Zahelski favours long shots again and frames the fight so we can see what ha what's happening. But there's also more variety and invention to the action this time with the subway battle, a shootout in the catacombs <laughs> in Italy and a tremendous riff on the end of the Dragon final, which you talked about mm. before. Um and it's also a more striking film, I think. Visually, it just looks better. There's some moments that are quite painterly. Uh, I adored, adored some of the images of Reeves at the party in Italy. They just mm. look fantastic. Uh, posed on top of a roof in Rome. Um, or the last shots of him, when he's leaving that mirrored room and you're not certain whether you're looking at a reflection of him or him. Yeah. I thought that was a really nicely paced little cut sequence. And the pace, once it gets going, is fantastic. So driving. And I loved how it all played out with John Wick. Trapped helplessly by the rigid rules of the world he's into, that becomes a big thing. Like mm. the rules are so harsh, and he's trying to play by them all the time, which I think is a really—I mean, that is the narrative. I think, yeah, you know, that that draws you in. It's like, how can he work within the rules that are there to just destroy him? You know? Yeah. And and sorry to interrupt, but that's that's where we go back uh, to the samurai and the killer, right? Yeah. Because that's exactly as a, a man out of time, you know, yeah, code a code that he's adhering to that yeah. no one else is. Yeah, and then in the last moment, his last act of defiance is to break that code because yeah. really he's 
he's been pushed into an absolute corner, and mm. I think that sets up. It's, it ends up with such a great setup for a third film. Mm. I mean, I can remember um, a film that finishes well always gets extra points. It's just the way it works for me, you know. And I can remember sitting in the cinema after I watched this and thinking, right, John Wick 3 now, please. You know, <laughs> if I'd rolled it now, I would have been more than happy. Um, so, yeah, I adored the film. It's left satisfied and wanting more. And that's all I can ask for, I think. Right. Yeah. So I agree. I think the world building in this is really strong yeah. as well. I do as well. I, I think maybe um, just to kind of uh, criticise a little bit, just and again, this I, I basically to give you a story, I watched the first one, then two days later I watched the second one, and then maybe a week later I watched John Wick 3 at the cinema. Mm. Um, and so... Yeah, so some of it is kind of like, oh, probably just eating too much dessert at once, <laughs> which I love dessert. Yeah. But it's probably like too, probably made myself slightly sick. You probably need it, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but I'd say that the villains in this weren't quite as, uh, like Peter Stormy at the, at the beginning is great, but I think that some of the other villains I didn't quite get into as much. Like Ruby Rose, not particularly a fan of hers. Uh, and Common was all right, but oh, I... Oh, funny. Yeah, yeah. I just as a, I, I think he's adequate as a, as a screen presence. Right. I mean, and I'm talking not in this, I'm just generally. Yep. One notes things quite a lot. He'll often deliver the same. Like I, mean, I think he's in Smoke and Aces, he's the same. And then even in Date Night, he's the same. And then in this, he's the same. Right, I haven't seen Smoke and Aces. Yeah, yeah. and it's kind of, he's often quite the same kind of delivery. Um, which is not a bad thing. You could say the same thing about Keanu Reeves or anyone. Yeah. So it is, I, 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 I think, think what I liked about him is in the first film, as much as I enjoyed the first film, I, there, there were a few opponents where I felt like this is someone who should yeah. go up against... John Wick, That's whereas right. I felt that was common, you know? Yeah. And I like the fact he wasn't a villain in the true villainous sense, so yeah. that made... He's more of an equal... Yeah, and that made that conflict, I thought, better. Yeah, yeah, probably right there. Um, and then he, even just the kind of the, the uber villain in it, I, I preferred the guy in the first one, I preferred the um, the uh, the Russian, you know, in the, right. in the first one. I, I thought that, that their kind of family dynamic and... There's like a that. past, and yeah, there's a past, as, as well. and, there was a, and also because they keep <laughs> that thing we've talked about where they keep building him up, and they you know he's kill, killed three men with a pencil and stuff. Oh. And, you know that story just keeps going. He's like, yeah, yeah I've heard that story. Like, by this yeah, thing. yeah, and the things about um the job he had to do to get out of the life, the, you know, the bodies he left on the ground built his life, and it's like, mm. man, what did he do? You know, the, <laughs> the impossible job they keep referring to. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you know? yeah, and I think that that stuff in the first one was really successful, and I think yep. maybe. Uh, and the second one, not so much for me, but again, because I watched, watched so close together, it might. Yeah, I, I just, I just, I think for me, I felt this one had a really, like, the, I was really, I found the idea of a man trying to navigate through an impossible world of rules and strict you know, mm -hmm. guidelines and then being forced at the end break them to escape and that right. just making his world worse was just quite rewarding for me. Right. And I like the pace of it for the most part as well. Um, and I just thought it was a better looking film. Oh, yeah, you're right there. You know, sure. it's quite beautifully shot. Um, it's a budget thing as well. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see what you're saying. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And watching them back to back would be very strange. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's why I was like, oh, I think I need to have a break yeah, before I go yeah. and see John <laughs> <laughs> This life follows you. Clings to you, infecting everyone comes close to you. We are cursed, you and I. On that, we agree. And then we're on to John Wick 3, starring Keanu Reeves, Halle Berry, Ian McShane, Lawrence Fishburne, and Asia Kate Dillon. Directed by Chad Stalhowski and written by Derek Colstard. Shay Hatton, Chris Collins, and Mark Abrams. Right. Well, four writers. That's yeah. a good sign, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, on top of uh, mm. seeing as um, Derek Colstad wrote the first two by himself. Yeah. Having killed a member of the high table, John Wick is on the run again with an even larger price on his head. After several brutal attempts on his life, the boogeyman cashes in some favours, first from a woman known as the director who grants him safe passage to Casablanca, and then from Sophia, the manager of the Continental in Casablanca, who helps him to meet with the elder, a high-ranking member of the high table. Meanwhile, an individual known as the Adjudicator arrives in New York to punish anyone who aided Wick, recruiting a master assassin, Zero, and his students to help her in her bloody cause. Wick returns to New York, having been forgiven, but to prove he is truly contrite, he must carry out one more assassination. He has to kill Winston. Mm. Yeah. Look, John Wick 3's first three combat scenes are magnificent. Oh, my goodness. And for me, they were the highlights of the film, actually. Uh... The knife battle in particular was fantastic. Yeah, look, it was just sorry. No, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to agree with you. Basically, <laughs> the knife battle in particular was just like visceral and inventive. And what I realised is that the gunplay in these films, as I said, gets a little numbing. But this narrow hallway knife fight just has a captivating cause and effect that had the audience gasping and approving delight. There's also something to be said for watching this film in the cinema. Yeah. It was a fun shared experience, one that I didn't have with the previous installments, as I've said. And I had the privilege of that experience with like the raid films, right? So we yep. even saw the raid films, and especially the first one, which Simon and I saw on opening night with anticipation levels at their peak. And it adds to the enjoyment, obviously. Yeah. Oh, I just love that knife scene. That, yeah, that was oh, look. such a highlight for me. I 100% agree. I mean, I, like I said, the end of John Wick 2 was perfect for me. Such a great setup. It's like a gentle full toss for John Wick 3 to smash to the boundary. <laughs> And, and Parabellum proceeds to do that via two, I'm trying to think, what was the third? The, there's the first one's the... The library. The library with the book, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic in which the book becomes this film's pencil. Yeah, and then you've got the uh, then you got the knife fight, yep. and then you've got the... Which is amazing. Then it's into the horse chase, isn't it? Right, yeah, the horse that chase, yeah. into that. That's but true. also, I love the, after the horse, just the, well, I was actually giggling straight after the knife fight. He walks out and he just gets hit by a car and then he stands up and he gets hit by another car coming the other way. He gets hit by so many cars. Yeah, and and, and I was just giggling. And <laughs> my wife Legit said to me, she's like, what are you laughing at? I'm like, this is just so farcically brilliant. Like, like yeah. <laughs> it was just like, you thought, you know, she was kind of getting blown away by the, but I was just kind of giggling. Like, and yeah. I remember the same thing in the raid, uh, watching that at the cinema, and you know, when they tossed the grenade into the fridge and they're throwing it around and stuff. And, yeah. Um, I just remember being the same in that. Like, it just, being so hyped up on delight, almost short of oxygen because it was so funny and oh, that, and wild ride, and this look, was the same. I don't think you're going to see a bit of knife fight on 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 film. No, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. I really yeah. did. I think it's almost one, of, almost probably my favorite action sequence out of the, any of the three. Yeah, so good. Yeah, I I'm I'm thinking I'm trying to rank them. Um, that's yeah, pro- probably true. Yeah, probably and, true. The, and the book thing was great as well. You yeah, know, like it was, there, there was a great way to introduce it. Yeah, and um, and it, and it made me realise that I and again I think that's probably where I'm coming down on it a little bit with the gunplay was when those gunplay ones come in I just watching it and it's like oh yeah this is kind of all quite impressively staged but I don't find it viscerally uh, as inventive just the cause and effect of that and the yep. dancing avoiding using each other's human shields you know smashing the the um, yeah. <laughs> realizing they turn around when they realize that they're know, in a surrounded shop full by. of knives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, and, yeah. I, and I love it as well. But it, but for me, it all starts to go off when, for me, off the, off the boil, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. When Wick leaves the states, 
Right. So, so now, Cherry traveled to Italy in the last film, but that sequence was moving the plot forward as well as just being, you know, really entertaining, mm. I, I found. But the stuff that happens in Casablanca feels kind of inconsequential. Mm-hmm. You could trim a lot of it out and not lose any of the sense of the story and what it's doing. Uh, the introduction of Halle Berry's so- Sophia and her dogs and the action sequence that follows, I, you could drop it entirely and, you know, and that's never a great sign. Like, it wouldn't affect the plot to drop that mm-hmm. whole sequence out. I felt like I was watching a film set up characters that they want to spin off into other films. Yeah. I like that episode of Happy Days, you know, where Mork shows up <laughs> solely so that we can see him in Mork and Mindy. Um, it's odd <laughs> first time you'll hear these films compared. Um, and the action scene that follows is just, for me, repetitive and less inventive than the series usually manages to be. Sure, crotch snapping attack dogs is a nice touch, but once I've seen one set of balls being punctured by a German Shepherd, I've kind of seen all of them. You know, I get the gag at that point. Yeah. And the geography of the fighters is kind of unclear to me. Um, and again, that's unusual for the series where I usually know where I am and I can get a sense of the combat. Mm. Um, the threat is vague as well. Like, how many opponents are they facing and, and what do they have to do to get through this? Mm. Uh, Rick shoots a guy who tumbles down the stairs like he was in an old-timey western. And I've got no problem with that. But he does it more than once. And I kind of feel like, ah, this whole sequence is feeling a little bit... Mm. We're, we're getting into a territory that, that, for me, the film before it didn't do. And, and certainly the first three fights didn't do. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um... Yeah, Parabellum really does widen the scope of the series and takes the action outside of the slick metropolis as the first two are set in. Instead, taking us to the desert so shady characters can like channel Peter Lorre and Casablanca or Omar Sharif and mm. Lawrence of Arabia. We very much felt they were kind of nods to that. But what was a pleasing aspect was some of the new secondary characters. Uh, Asia Kate Dillon, especially channeling their inner Kate Blanchett. Mm. Uh, makes for a welcome non-physical villain mirroring Ian McShane's seemingly benevolent Winston. And uh, Mark Dacascos, so memorable and spoiler alert favourite Brotherhood of the Wolf, uh, appears as the major physical nemesis. He also gets progressively funnier as the film hurtles towards its climax, I noticed as well. Mm. Um, Especially when he's like, hey, John, that's a pretty good fight. (laughs) And uh, Angelica Houston is the matriarch of the Ruska Roma secret society, which holds the key to John's origin story, which the film wisely only presents us with a glimpse of. And even Halle Berry, who has the ability to li- to deliver some questionable performances. I think, I think my, my bar for her is quite low. So I think she found kind of struck the right balance here. And I actually thought her fight sequences were quite impressive. Not so much as you say, like in the, again, that's something where I kind of stood back and admired what they were doing as a stunt kind of thing, you know, and, and being aware she must have had to learn to do all of this stuff, just like Keanu Reeves did. Uh, but it was good to see Lance Reddick's concierge, Sharon, tool up and lay the smack down while fighting side by side with our hero, who was always outnumbered but never outgunned. Yeah, Mark de Cascos. Um, look, I, I wasn't rapt about this. Like, I, I like the guy, and I was really pleased to see him because obviously I love Brotherhood of the Wolf, and obviously Iron Chef America. Yeah, of course. Man, I love that. But I don't think this film needs, um, for me, the sort of self-awareness that he brings. You know, he, he's a wick fanboy, and so are all of his mm. assassins. You know, they're gushing over the chance to fight the boogeyman. Um, and, and, and the introduction of comedy, I don't, you know, I don't mind a gag in these films. Like, I love, like I said, the silence of fight scene in Manhattan. Yeah. I thought that's the sort of humour this film does well, that sort of kind of ironic, you mm. know, detachment. But... The good fight, John, and and those sort of lines just it didn't work for me in this film. Right. Um, 
like I said, I like him, and I was really pleased that he was cast in this. And as, and as happens when I'm in a film like this and I'm kind of not enjoying the element of that, I find myself questioning how the world's working. And I think with his character, I had, you know, I had some real questions like, why after two films with the Carnage do they then only unleash Zero and his band of cut happy killers when it's established that they're ferociously lethal? Mm. I mean, they tear through two gangs, yeah. you know, with no loss to their own. Why aren't they as famous as John Wick at this mm. point? Why are they gushing over... John Wick, they should be just as famous. Yeah. And why are they working as sushi chefs? Like, I get that it could be like a cover, but they're the most dangerous forces in the Wickverse who are not named John Wick. Mm. Um, surely they've got better things to do with their time than sell sushi in a Manhattan oh, yeah, street. Perhaps, but it's not something that I question in this universe. Like, I think that if I start entering into questioning anything in this universe, then... Oh, I, I don't know. I think I think you need a, a level of... And I think if they hadn't made them kind of... I don't know, just such a fanboy of John Wick, and, and which was supposed to be funny, and I just didn't find it amusing. And I, th- I thought it, yeah, it just created a sort of a, a self-awareness about mm. the film that I, I wasn't really into. Right. Um, don't mind him, like I say, and it's mm. cool to see like an 80s action star going up against another, you know, yeah. I guess a 90s action star. <laughs> Something else that really bugged me on this was some of the action scenes themselves. Action scenes, I think, in films can prove problematic because they can cause the film's narrative to kind of stop while we engage in carnage, you know. The carnage, of course, can be fun, but if it's not plugged into the plot, then they can feel kind of a little bit random. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous films had such a clear line, clear through lines for me that this never happened, but it does happen in Parabellum a couple of times. And the worst offender was the motorbike chase, not the horse chase, but the motorbike chase later, which um, which cle- clearly came from somebody going, you know what would be cool? John Wick on a motorbike fighting ninjas. Mm. And that is cool. Obviously mm. that's cool. But it's not particularly well integrated in the narrative. They just suddenly have motorbikes and they're off yeah. on the street, you know. And if you're going to have a sign saying the road is closed up ahead, then that probably should pay off, eh? Mm. Like, I was really surprised. Was that a speed joke? Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. And, and the film also repeats the kind of final fight scene from the last film by having a room full of glass. Mm. And I never really bought why they had a room full of glass except for hey, this would be a cool place for John Wick and some dudes to destroy. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, they gave a, an exclamation for it, but I really thought, as soon as I saw it, this is just really you wanting a new setup. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I, I, I guess I don't like when an action film kind of is wagging the dog like that. Uh, naturally, the first one has the most visceral character motivation, while in the second and third films, the reason for Wick getting involved become quite murky and contrived. Like, I didn't necessarily like that. I mean, you've pointed out some, made some good points there, but for me, I think... Both two and three felt like, oh, we've got to keep contriving why he's in this, why he can't get out, and why mm. he's in this um, situation. Our hero is shorn of that drive. Instead, he gets roped into events. They kind of happen to him rather than our protagonist making a considered decision to propel the plot forward like he did in the first film. Mm. Like in that first film, he actually makes a decision, I am going to do it. And everyone's going, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. He's like, yes. Yeah, this is definitely, for me, um, the least of the wicks. Right? Yeah, yeah, for me. Um it just feels like uh, too many writers. I, th- I think mm-hmm. might be might be the cause. Maybe. But um, I felt a little like a lot of the action was just guys going, "You know what? It'd be cool. We should do this cool thing." Yeah, and I mean, and I heard Keanu Reeves say that in an interview. Yeah. Oh, I'm not surprised at yeah. all. Yeah. I'm sure they just sort of a gag and put it in. And um, yeah, it might be cool, but I mean, it doesn't feel like it's really worked through to the plot to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think they've gotten their eye on future franchises and, you yeah. know, there's talk of a spin-off TV series. Yeah. So I think they're seriously building up other things to do. And I don't want – I, d- I don't, don't like it when I can feel that happening in a film, you know? Yeah. Like I can feel they're doing work for other things. It's like, yeah. you know, when you watch a Marvel film and you're weird, they're just like – throwing stuff in because it'll be a character that becomes important later on mm. or, you know, they're, they're not doing stuff because they want to save it for other things. Yeah. And and I sense that in this film. It's, it's almost like this franchise is maybe getting a little bit too big, whereas mm. for me at least, two felt pretty clean mm. in the way it developed. And and you're right, there is a sense uh, early on with like, uh, I'm not really sure that John's mm. just being pulled along in this film. Yeah. Um, although once there was a bounty on him and he was heading back to New York to hunt down you know, mm. Anthony, I, fe- I, I felt like I, he is in control again. But yeah, yeah the, the, like I said, I think that the weakest point of that film was just getting him back in the game yeah, and finding a reason to make him. Yeah, look, uh, uh, interestingly, overall, there's a chance I actually enjoyed John Wick 3 Parabellum the most. Oh, right. Yeah, certainly, because if you ask me which one I'd put on right now, it'd be the third one. And I think it's because it has that those most inventive action sequences at the, or engaging, maybe, oh. at the beginning. Yeah. That, that, even just that first half hour I'd watch again. What's interesting is that we've we've talked three films here and we've barely mentioned Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, I know, I know. And I think that that's, that was a possibly a problem for me in two. Right. As well. Having him in there? Yeah. Like I think it's kinda of cute, obviously, Matrix. Yep. But his character was like, Well in two and in three is like, well, what do you do? Like and, and that was a part I think in two where I'm just like why are you guys all bums on the streets? Like, if you want to talk about people being sushi chefs, it's the same thing. It's like, why are you guys like? I get that you're supposed to be like the eyes and ears of the city. Yeah. But yeah, and it's just it's a yeah, and that's another thing where I was like, yeah, I don't quite. They didn't quite gel for me in the second one. Yeah. But I really liked um, I really like uh, Asia, Kate Dillon. Right. I, I thought she was good as the adjudicator, um, and. I thought there was an interesting wrinkle to bring into the, to the to the universe, mm. to the wikiverse, mm. wikiverse. Mm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, that sounds fair. Into the wiki wiki wild wild west. Oh yeah. Well, someone was going to say. <laughs> I'm kind of glad it's you, I guess. <laughs> so you didn't make me sad. Yeah. Look, even though I say this is the least of the wicks for me, here's the thing: it's still the best action scene you can uh, action film you can see in a cinema. I think. Yeah. Um, the knife fight and the library fight alone make it this a must see for me. And how often nowadays are expert martial arts films also multiplex events? Yeah. You know? Yeah. We probably should embrace Parabellum, warts and all, because there's nothing else like it still. Well, but it's not big budget, but I guess a fairly decent sized budget mm. martial arts film with really stylish, brutal action. Mm. Ah, it's not going to happen at the cinema all that often. No. And so did you, for this review, did you rewatch one and two or did you just do all this from memory? I rewatched one. Mm-hmm. And like I say, that's why I was surprised by that 29 minutes. Mm. Um, yeah, that really is like, oh, wow. Yeah, I can't remember that at all. Mm. Um, I didn't watch two just because I've seen two a number of times, twice in the cinema um, and several times on DVD since. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I decided not to return to that again. Mm-hmm. Um, although I would happily like... For me, if you laid the three out and said, I've watched one Simon, I'd go, oh, yeah, I think I'll watch two again. Thank yeah. you very much. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. And that's uh, spoiler alert for this month. Yep. That was uh, Wick Cubed. Wick Cubed. I'm sure there'll be a Wick uh, Quartered. Uh, Wick, Wick Four. I can't. Could you turn the K into a four? I always think about this when I think about, yeah. you know, sequels. Maybe, eh? yeah. 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 Not sure. Or maybe they'll turn the I 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't know. They, they don't look like John Wack. John Wack. <laughs> <laughs> Wick Wacks. Um, hey, so what was the film of the month for you? Well, look, um, I enjoyed John Wick 3 and I enjoyed Grant Santini, but the one that I want to talk about, my film of the month, was No Way Out from 1950. Uh, Sidney Poitier's debut film still retains much of its racially charged power with the most uncomfortable use of racial slurs outside of a Tarantino film. Oh. Uh, a story of a black doctor treating a couple of injured criminal white brothers. When one of them dies, the other blames a doctor and fans the flames of a race war. Poitier is once more the model of dignified defiance. His scenes across from a vicious Richard Widmark performance are sizzling with tension. It's also notable for the first on-screen pairing of legendary acting couple Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee, most memorably paired in Spike Lee's work, uh, Do the Right Thing and mm, Jungle Fever. Wow. So back in 1950, so yeah. they were still getting paired together 40-odd years later. Uh, director Joseph L. Mankiewicz wrote and directed this the same year he did All About Eve. So not much of a slouch. No. Um, <laughs> the film has many striking scenes, but one that is especially memorable is a slowly building hysteria as a bunch of white people pick through a junkyard for makeshift weapons to instigate a race riot. What ensues is reminiscent of Romper Stomper's conflicts minus the graphic violence. Yeah. Uh, the film switches focus throughout and gives substance and depth to many characters, particularly the lead trio. Most pleasingly, Linda Darnell's conflicted and insecure Scarlet Woman. Darnell herself is one of those kind of fascinating, tragic Hollywood stories that you'd find in, you know, like Hush Hush, <laughs> you know, in LA Confidential. Uh, but she would proudly and sadly say that No Way Out was the only good film she ever made. For a film released in 1950, No Way Out feels significantly ahead of its time. Not so much in subject matter, but in the depth of motivations of the characters. It allows layers to the villains, but also gives obstacles to Poitier that are elevated beyond simply overcoming prejudice. Oh, wow. Really good film. I haven't seen it. I'm yeah. going to have to now. Yeah, and I mean, this was Sidney Poitier's debut, and he's leading. And it's just, it was really impressive. Really good. So I recommend checking it out. And especially for Widmark. I mean, he was a very progressive actor in real life. Yeah. But he often played these kind of horrible yeah, characters. Yeah. Uh, kind of reminds me of like uh, James Gandolfini in Sopranos. You know, right. Spouting this kind of misogynist, homophobic, racist stuff. But it, apparently, you know, and, and this kind of, you know, really tough character. And apparently, you know, uh, one of his uh, opposite actors used to call him a big marshmallow. Yeah. That was his nickname for him. Um, and R Woodmark was the same, you know, very, even back then. So he's kind of one of these guys who's like, no, I'll, we'll do this role. I'll, we'll. Like this horrible character, but he was actually a very progressive guy. Um, but yeah, it's man, it's really confronting, and it's and it's racism and its use of um, you know racial slurs is quite jarring. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, recommend checking it out though if you can get a chance. And what about you? What was your favorite film? Uh, I mean, apart from Godzilla, obviously. <laughs> Godzilla too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to say, but I, I am going to talk for a moment about Calamity Jane. Oh, right. Um, because, of course, Doris Day passed away this uh, in the last month. So I thought, you know, I really want to see a, a day film because I'm not sure how many I'd have seen in my life. Mm. Um, and I'd heard good things about Calamity Jane, and it was really enjoyable. Mm. So um, it's a it's a Western musical, essentially. And Day is pretty delightful in this, um, full of enthusiasm, wide-eyed. She has some really good uh, songs and some really good numbers. And it's an interesting film for having this section with her and another woman basically shack up together and do up this house that they're going to live in together. Right. And it feels kind of 
um, it's been a popular, as you can imagine, sure. uh, you know, in, in the gay community for that for that moment. And it, it's a small part of the film, but it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Native Americans get pretty short shift, unfortunately. I can imagine, yeah. Just villains or jokes, essentially, which is really hard when you're watching a film. Yeah, it's 1953, but, you know, mm. as a modern audience, it can be a bit tough. But if you're watching it to see Day and to see what sort of performance she was, she's great fun. Yeah. And, and the film is uh, quite sly, pretty pretty witty at times. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a really nice number. So, But, yeah, I was uh, sad to see her day. She had a great career, and, of course, um, she was an animal lover, and mm. that's always, you know, big points for me. Yeah, that's great. I mean, she was a, she was a massive star, wasn't she? And She um, she sure was. Uh, she was a box office favourite for quite a while and had her own TV show and things like that. And, um, you know, I haven't seen I, – I, I don't even know – I think the only Doris Day film I've seen is The Man Who Knew Too Much. I was going to say, yeah. Th- I mean, I'm aware of her, you know, the Rock Hudson, and she did some with Rod Taylor and people like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I've seen anything other than she's done. The it. sort of reputation she has is for being, um, you know, a bit saccharine and a mm. bit, you know, a bit too goody-good. Yeah. So that sort of film has f- sort of fallen out of favour, which is a shame because she's, she's a fun performer for, you know, but yeah. especially based on this film. Mm. Cool. And what's the song we're going out to, Simon? Right, well, it's uh, I Punch Keanu Reeves. <laughs> it seemed, it seemed fitting. Um, so this is not from the Wickverse, but this is from Always Be My Maybe, which is a Netflix film that came out recently. Uh, has a, just an amazing cameo from Keanu Reeves. It's, uh, the film's fine. Um, I didn't love it, but I love the scenes in which Keanu Reeves shows up playing himself yeah. um, as a real douchebag, basically. <laughs> It's enormous fun for, the, for for every minute he's on screen. He's having a moment, eh? Yeah. And it's it's quite fun watching him have a moment. I was saying to someone at work that I was thinking, uh, like he's in his fifties now, doing you know he's fifty what fifty two mm. doing John Wick three, and I'm thinking, yeah. man, it's just, you almost wish he was twenty years younger doing that. Yeah. This and then I thought, oh, twenty years ago he was. Yeah, that's right. Twenty years ago he was having a similar moment that he's having yeah. now, which is, I guess, pretty delightful. The, the Reeves Nascence. Yeah, the Reeves yeah. Nascence. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is that he he has done so much great stuff, uh, and you know he's done he did Speed and he did The Matrix. You know, yep. and that should be enough normally, and then he's having this kind of amazing. It's, it's like a third act almost. You yeah, know? it really is. When you yeah. consider he also did. You know, obviously he started with Bill and Ted's, um, yeah. but also he did, you know, My Own Private Idaho and things mm. like that. So uh, he did uh, Much Ado About Nothing. You know, people forget these films that he's done. Yeah, yeah. He's turned up. And I actually always remember him being really good in uh, The Gift, the Sam Raimi film, yeah. where he was playing this kind of white trash, abusive husband. Yeah. Um, so he is capable of doing these, like making some really interesting choices. Yeah, my, my theory is about, you know, when the people say, oh, he's a terrible actor and stuff, mm. it's just that he's so peculiar. Mm, and that's right. the problem. Um, when it fits something right, it can be amazing. But yeah. it isn't, he's such an unusual performer. Even the way he moves is so unusual, which is why I say it's so suited to what he does in, in the John Wick films. Yeah. But he's just a weird, rangy, difficult looking character. And yeah. the way he talks is difficult. But. If he finds the right role, yeah, yeah, and and uh, the, as a lot of people said, if uh, the kind of um, the the agreeable thing about the Matrix is, well, if Keanu Reeves can understand it, then I can understand it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or more importantly, he's a really good vessel to discover worlds. Yeah, and he does it in the Matrix, and he does it really well in John Wick. Yeah, and that's where that world building thing comes in because you're kind of experiencing it with him, and there's all these other vivid characters around him, and he's just like. I'm just trying to do the right thing. And yeah. He's insanely, you know, kind of colorful yeah, characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good, he's a good um, person to navigate those yeah, roles. Yeah, he's you know. a good foil. They, they can kind of pour this vivid mm. um, 
vividness into these other characters and make them really over the top. Yep. And he's just this, you know, he's like a Clint Eastwood kind of thing where he's in the middle and you just can have these, like Dirty Harry, can have these wild screaming psychopaths yep. like Scorpio running around him. And he's just like, well, got to get stuff done. Yeah, you know? totally. <laughs> So, yeah. Um, well, cool. That's the song going out to. Thanks to everyone for listening. Yeah, cheers. And uh, we will see you next month. All right, take care. Cheers. Hello, hello, hello. Best believe I punched Keanu Reeves and it was better than any scene you could see in speed. I hit John Wick and now I'm feeling so appealing. Basically, I'm a god. You could call me Hercules. Best believe I punched Keanu Reeves and it was better than any scene you could see in speed. I'm telling you for real, I punched Neo. He could duck bullets, but he couldn't duck me. I'm feeling so refreshed, the new sheriff's in town Check the button on my vest, it's Keanu with the bruise around the Oculus Now I'm just cruising the metropolis, in my prime like Optimus Everything is half full, I'm an optimist Haven't done ish, yet I feel accomplished Best pugilist, blessed with the iron fist Strong enough to survive the apocalypse And any summit I could be on Any point break, I could surf with my Gion Take any fighter, any class, I'ma put you on your ass Then I'll pee on you peons for eons and eons and eons and eons, etc. Not a tall fellow, but nobody can measure up. And if you want to feel similar to this, all I had to do was cold cock an icon of cinema. Best believe I punched Keanu Reeves and it was better than any scene you could see in speed. I hit John Wick and now I'm feeling so appealing. Basically, I'm a god. You could call me Hercules. What an excellent adventure. I wouldn't be surprised if Keanu's wearing dentures. I got a high five that can make a man die. I should be with the Justice League and the Avengers. Taking out contenders with Flea. Carefree and as happy as can be low key. Cause the only thing better than punching Keanu Reeves is the fact that his girl chose me. People keep asking if I'm back. And I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back.